Wes Craven, writer and director. Nightmare was written after I'd done two films back to back. I thought that it would just really a quick sale. I mean, that I'd done, you know, three or four horror films and everybody would just jump on it. But actually, um, Deadly Blessed and Swamp Thing both didn't do that well in the box office. And Friday the 13th were kind of starting to get old. There was this notion around town, around Hollywood, that horror was dead. It was a very powerful notion, and they're bad, and uh, they corrupt people and youth. Nobody wants to see them anymore. So the, the script kind of went around Hollywood. Robert Shea, producer and founder of New Line Cinema. I had come out to Los Angeles with a pal of mine named Mark Forstatter, who's a producer. He made me come out to Los Angeles to meet some young filmmakers, and one of them was Wes, one was Toby Hooper. We had our meetings, nothing much occurred, but when at a subsequent trip I called Wes just to see if he had anything going on, and he said yes, he thought he had a, a deal for his next film, which was a film about kids who, when they went to sleep, they were being killed by a boogeyman in their sleep, and the trick was to figure out how to vanquish the boogeyman without going to sleep and letting him get the upper hand, so to speak. In this story, you didn't wake up from your nightmare, so you've had to be careful and solve the problem before you let yourself go to sleep. And uh, Wes said, well, he uh, would keep me in mind, and then eventually, after everybody else passed on it, he uh, called me back and said, I think uh, it's available if you're interested. We optioned the script and took it from there. Sarah Risher, co-producer. Ultimately, it was a matter of getting the money together. And we had to piece it together uh, because so far we weren't, you know, very well known as a production company. And um, even though we'd been successful in, up to this time with distributing things like Street Fighter and the martial arts films, um, but this was our first big production and we realized we had to do it in Hollywood because that's going to be where the stars were and where Wes wanted to shoot. Robert Shea, producer. This was one of those typical situations where the money was raised and then part fell out and then we'd, and pretty soon you're starting pre-production and you have to start funding the thing on your own and I was actually funding it out of my own pocket for a few thousand bucks. There was a big element of risk and I, uh, I, 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 quite ironically, we were trying to raise money for the company and our accountants at that time got me to be a keynote speaker at an entertainment uh, conference that they were holding in New York. And my topic was how to raise money for an independent movie. And while well, I'm writing the speech, we're sitting there and we had raised nothing. And, I, and I'm putting in two or 3,000 bucks a week to keep the production manager and other people just working on the thing. And it was this, it was this great paradox. I'm, I'm, I'm spouting off how to raise money, and we hadn't raised the dime. Wes Craven, writer and director. It took him uh, three years to find the money to do it. I know that he had um, a company, Smart Egg, in Europe, I believe, that uh, put some money into it. And I know at just about two weeks before we started shooting, that a significant portion of his backing fell out. Sarah Risher, co-producer. Week or 10 days later, Bob called us with the good news. He had gotten a new partner. I think it was Media Home Entertainment. And they became our heroes, of course. Um, and they put up the rest of the money, and we were set to go, and we went. Jacques Haidkin, cinematographer. Just like any other film, there was a strategy, a pre-production strategy, reading the script, meetings that takes place, you know, the, the usual. Uh, it was done in a way like a studio. It was done on a lot. The film was shot on a lot, even though it did have a lot of location filming. It based on an independent lot in Hollywood where sets were being built, pretty elaborate sets. But uh, 
So just it was like it was a low budget movie, but it was sort of shot like a, a studio style. Wes Craven, writer and director. I think uh, the reason Bob wanted to bet on a nightmare was that Bob Smart. You know, he he recognizes something that is good when he sees it, and uh, he's also a gambler. And I don't mean in private life, but he gambles on his films. Look at Lord of the Rings. I mean, he sunk a hell of a lot of money into that. Um, and you can easily say that the whole future of the studio rode on that. Paid off beautifully because he was able to recognize both that this was a story that somebody had read, but also that he had a director who had, although he'd done a small, couple of very small little films, was a you know, genius. So um, I think more than anything else, Bob Shea is a very, very smart guy who is willing to gamble on something if he really believes in it. And uh, that's what a filmmaker needs. Tina had your name written all over it. There's four letters in my name, Rod. How could there be room on your joint for four letters? <laughs> hey, up yours with a twirling lawnmower. Amanda Wiss, oh, Tina Gray. I'd done uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and there was something else, but right after Nightmare, I'd, in a succession, I was then leaving to do Better Off Dead and then Silverado right after that, and I'd already knew that that was my schedule. So I was just sort of over the moon. Actually, I was to say overwhelmed as well, but so I was sort of going from one thing to the next. It was very exciting. I didn't feel like I was incredibly, you know, savvy or like, oh, I had it so going on. I was still very, so young that even though I'd worked, it was still, I was still trying to figure it all out. And when I got on the set and, you know, I didn't really know anything about horror. I'd never seen one and I don't like to be scared. And I, so I didn't know, like, I didn't have an innate feel for the genre. Just having to come from a place of craft to, to sort of um, uh, create a sense of reality in this completely unnatural environment of, you know, people killing you in your dreams and such. Wes Craven, writer and director. I think Amanda had a worldliness about her. And I wanted, it was a little bit like the uh, the girls in uh, Last House on the Left. You, you have the one kind of innocent, and then you have the one who kind of knows the ways of the world and men and so forth. So uh, Amanda's character needed to be that. It just felt like she had, you know, been out there and been knocked around a little bit by life. It just makes an interesting tension, I think, to have two characters that are kind of drawn to their antipodes in a way. I mean, the, the girl who's been, you know, kind of in the world maybe more than she would have even cared to have been, uh, being attracted to somebody who's still innocent, and the innocent one knowing that she can't stay innocent forever, kind of having a friend who can give her a sense of what the world really is like. Uh, no, just some neighbors having a fight, I guess. I'm fine. I'll call you in the morning. Robert Shea, producer. Our casting director was uh, Annette Benson, and she had cast uh, some successful independent movies. Charlie Sheen was interested in playing the lead, but uh, he wanted $3,000 a week, and we didn't have it in our budget. So she showed up with this kid who had just moved from Miami, I think, and was a, a, a rock musician named Johnny Depp, and uh, asked me whether I thought he would be good. But at that point, I was so freaked out that we weren't going to have anybody. I was, I was delighted to see, you know, a good-looking guy who seemed like a, on the ball who would take the money, frankly, and do the job. So that was, uh, that was how Johnny showed up. It was his first movie. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. Johnny and I had an opportunity to get together. I think one afternoon, 
like a week before we started shooting. And uh, he came over to my house and we decided that we wanted to go someplace that was a real Hollywood, like iconic Hollywood location and just talk about our characters. We went up to the Griffith Park Observatory. It's at the top of the Hollywood Hills, right above the Hollywood sign, and you see everything in LA. And it was a sunny day, and it's where James Dean and Natalie Wood had a very famous scene in um, Rebel Without a Cause. And now I look back on it, you know, that was his first job, and, and I had only maybe been in two other projects, so I wasn't very experienced either. So if anything, I think we probably just both <laughs> were so nervous and, um, you know, we just wanted to do the right thing. We wanted, and this was going to be our research, you know, how to, how to, you know, be boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, we didn't do anything, of course, except have a conversation, but um, it just helped us get to know each other a little I'm bit. Ugly lights, whoever you are. Wes Craven, writer and director. Johnny was very, very um, devoted to getting it right. So um, he, he kind of hired or had a friend uh, who was an actor. Every time that Johnny had a scene, he would just go over and over and over Judge it with Joe. his friend. He had very, very high standards, and uh, he always thought he was doing terrible work. But uh, he ended up doing a really interesting character. just three yards from the goal line. What a brilliant tackle, and the fans go wild. What the hell are you doing here? Getting the makeup. Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. Uh -huh. Well, I think um, the four of us, um, the the young actors, we had, I think actually when we all got together, we none of us were, you know, seasoned professionals by any means. So I think that there was a, a fairly even playing field as far as you know. Um, different, you know, we might have had different levels of training or whatever. But until that training's really tried and tested, it's not like it's, um, a sh uh, you know, you're not hitting it out of the ballpark. <laughs> so. So I don't know that that even, you know, you know, gives anybody a leg up other than you have, like, this information. But you haven't, you know, I certainly hadn't, you know, seasoned it. And I wasn't, didn't feel c completely sure of every choice I was making. But I think that the four of us were all pretty level as far as, um, you know, our our age range and, and, you know, how much work we'd done. And I also think that uh, we just really bonded. I think none of us really knew much about the genre, which is interesting, because I don't know if today you could get young actors that didn't know that much about the genre to do it. And I, I wonder, and I've often wondered when people ask me about that, if that isn't why we're so um, identifiable or so um, relatable in the film, because we didn't have a concept of playing it any other way, like that we weren't playing it uh, to effect or for an effect of some sort of a kind of a film we've seen before. I remember like even play, when, uh, in playing the film, it, all of our scenes were really like we would be really, uh, we'd explore, you know, where we'd been, why we were doing it and stuff. And then it was like, oh yeah, and then the boogeyman comes out of the dream. And you're like, okay, then there's that aspect. And so then there's, but I mean, so it was all played very much for, um, you know, from a real truthful emotional place. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. When I grew up, I, I grew up in Oklahoma and and the culture of horror movies had not really taken off there. I do remember being really affected by a horror movie called Burnt Offerings that um, starred Karen Black. And that was probably the one experience that I'd had with horror movies until I got the part of Nightmare on Elm Street. And so, you know, that was kind of a different style of horror movies where you had this family in a 
in a situation that becomes very horrifying. A house starts to kind of fall apart while they're living there and it's possessed. And so Karen Black, who you know I greatly admire for her work, um, she was kind of who was in my head. It wasn't Jamie Lee Curtis, because I hadn't really seen Halloween. And so um, I was thinking of horror movies in, in more of that old-fashioned type of um, you know, family setup, and then you know everything falls apart, and people are running around petrified, and then you know you have this final scene in the movie where everything—it just gets so scary that you can hardly stand it. And the one character that was the mystery, you know, really shows herself as being this terrible, you know, kind of witchy character. So that's really—I was coming from a very naive. Um, you know, I, I did not know much about what horror movies had the potential to be. Jacques Haidtken, cinematographer. I look at horror films from a much more sociological point of view because that's the type of person I am. But uh, so the, all the scare stuff, especially being behind the scenes myself, definitely takes a little bit out of it when you're watching it. So I do go more for the meaning of the movies. But uh, when you're actually making the film, that's different. It's completely the opposite. You're R&Ding right from the get-go. So even though these are things that will not resonate with you as an audience on the other end, as a technical artist, you're looking at the challenges of making, you know, all these little goals, effects, things that are emotional, you know, something that the writer wrote and we're conceiving it and it's amorphous and we're formulating it and everybody needs to get involved and put in their two cents. And so that's, so there's a lot of uh, development of how we're gonna do things, especially back then, it was a much more analog age. You know that spandex wall, there's a wall that she leans in. It's such a simple concept of a flat wall and a light that's grazing the airspace above the wall. So it's not there, and when she comes into the airspace of the light, it, it portrays, a, you know, it's like a sculpture. It's like a light sculpture appearing, and it's done completely analog. Rick Shane, editor. I was particularly taken with a lot of the physical effects that they did, because at that time, um, the um, computer uh, computer visual effects was at a very primitive stage, so that most of the scares that they did were involved with physical effects. And so, of course, I was thrilled to see what they were doing on the set, and, and, and what you would see in dailies was pretty much what you would get in the film. It wasn't like now where you, you have a green screen and you know, okay, it's gonna be treated. There's, it's gonna be subject to lots of back and forth. Um, with Nightmare, the first Nightmare, it was pretty much what we saw in dailies was what I needed to use in the cut to achieve the scary moments. Who the hell is that? John Burroughs, production manager and associate producer. Wes looked for a person to play uh, Kruger, 
all, he, he looked all over for that. Oh, I'd say probably three weeks before we were gonna shoot, he was getting desperate and he didn't, hadn't, didn't have anyone. And Robert England came in, his agent had heard about the part and his agent had called the office and uh, gotten a hold of Wes and said, I'd like you to look at my uh, actor. Uh, and he said, I'll have him there anytime you want. And so Wes said, okay, have him here tomorrow morning. And at nine o'clock, he was there. Robert Shea, producer. My initial thoughts were we really needed a, a good actor. They, they, we, there was a lot of pressure to cast a stuntman. It probably was Annette who came up with the idea of casting Robert, who in fact was a Shakespearean actor and a really good one. And that obviously was a key, key casting element in the film and a key element in the film's success because of what a unique character Robert is personally and what a unique character he can play uh, when he gets into, into character. Robert England, Fred Krueger. I was sort of part of that 70s renaissance that some film historians will tell you is the last golden age of Hollywood. I worked with Bob Rafelson on his film that followed Five Easy Pieces, which was sort of the, the, the bar had been set with that and introduced Jack Nicholson really to the wide, to a worldwide audience. And, uh, and, and Rafelson was use of improv and, uh, and control and contemporary issues. He, he, he and Altman were the gods back then. And, uh, and David Lynch being sort of avant-garde then. And I did a lot of work with Robert Mulligan, Daniel Petrie, um, Frank Pearson, who wrote Dog Day Afternoon. A bunch of terrific directors. And there was a new kid on the block. And we sort of didn't know what to think of him, but he, we, we thought of Wes Craven in those days as a kind of David Lynch director because we knew him from The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. And I remember, I hadn't even sat all the way through one of those movies yet. I had actually been at a club on La Brea that had a continuous loop of some of the strangest scenes from both those films. And going, what the hell is that about? So I didn't know it, well, who, you know, Wes Craven could have been Charlie Manson for all I knew, or some guy, you know, with a David Lynch do. I didn't know, and, uh, but, but that was sort of his rep. But we all wanted to work with him because we knew this guy was doing something really different. David DelVal, author and film historian. For A Nightmare on Elm Street, the thing that makes it so unique is that up until this film, we did not have a supernatural presence in horror films anymore. We had Michael Myers, we had Jason Voorhees, we had Norman Bates, but these were all flesh and blood characters that even though because of the franchise, they didn't die, but it wasn't because they were a monster. By this point in time, filmmakers felt, well, you know, we can't do a story about a vampire, that's too corny, we can't do werewolves, we can't really do ghosts anymore, that doesn't work. So the whole idea of the supernatural element in horror films had just pretty much dried up. And then Wes Craven came up with this, this amazing character, this dream demon called Fred Krueger. Robert England, Fred Krueger. I think Freddy's kind of original because I think because he is contemporary. I mean, he he borrows from the classic boogeyman of old. This is again. I mean, this is where Wes's 
built his mythology. You know, he's laid, he's built the structure and his infrastructure on the old uh, mythology, whether it's Brothers Grimm or, 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 you know, the woman warrior. He's mixed these things up. Or again, Freud, he's, he's mixed all these things up. But, uh, and dream analysis and what that means. But, but Freddie, I think, stands on his own uh, two feet, so to speak, because he's, he is, there is something very contemporary about him. David Miller, Special Makeup Effects. I went to a science fiction convention once I was to be on a panel of special effects people. And this kid walked up to me. I, I guess he must have been like 18, 19. And he said, so what's it like to create a classic monster like Frankenstein? I thought, I never thought of it that way. That's a good idea. Yeah, well, it feels good. <laughs> That's why we were there, Mom. But you just didn't want to sleep alone. <laughs> Ronnie Blakely, Marge Thompson. It came to me through my roommate at the time, Anita Lucioni. She had been the secretary for my former husband, Bim Vendors. And she was, at that time then, I believe, working for Bob Shea. And so she told me about it, and I really got the part, I believe, directly as a result of her recommending me. Honey, you were tossing what I recall about Wes's directing was his uh, extreme care to have the set be silent, so respectful to try to get something on film. Keep busy, you know. Right home after. Right home after. Okay. See ya. See you. Wes Craven, writer and director. The lead character is Nancy. I think she was based a little bit on my, my daughter, or at least uh, was trying to create a heroine for my daughter who criticized me sharply for having uh, the heroine of Swamp Thing fall down <laughs> uh, when she was running. I said, oh, my dad, how can you do that? Women don't just fall down when they're running. And I suddenly realized, like, you know, it's right. I mean, the history of women in, in genre films had been, I mean, the worst example is Faye Ray, where she basically faints. Um, but there's so often you see the picture of the guy fully, of course, consciousness and upright, carrying the woman who's totally out of it and, you know, my hero. And being raised by a widow, uh, I knew that wasn't the way life worked, you know, uh, that a lot of women had to go out there and make it, make things happen and, and work really, really hard and be very brave. Fruitcake or something, I'm warning you. Just move away from us, son. Real easy, like your ass depended on it. She was kind of like the kid next door. She didn't have a lot of makeup on. She had just ordinary clothes on, but she had she had courage. And she had the uh, willingness to look at unpleasant truths and act on them based on the reality of that unpleasant truth rather than uh, not act on them and try to look away and conduct your life as if all that stuff wasn't going on. I just wanted a young character who was what I thought is the best of American feminine energy. So it was like trying to create somebody who was real and had substance as a character. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. She is a very tough teenager, and her parents were divorced. Her dad was a cop, you know, so as a child of a cop, you know, you have to be extra good or extra bad. You know, you kind of have to toe the line or decide to completely rebel against it. And, and I got the feeling that she was always going to be a good citizen, and, and she 
she loved her parents, but it's that time of your life when you just feel like no adult out there really understands what life is like for you. And then on top of it, you have this supernatural experience with, you know, Freddy Krueger. Same is true in a different way in Julius Caesar. John, will you go ahead, please? Sarah Risher, co-producer. What I particularly liked about the story was it was female empowerment. In some of the other horror films, most of the, the girls who had been bad uh, all got killed off, and it was usually the guys that vanquished, you know, the, the killer. Um, so this was one of the first ones where the girl, the woman, was the hero. And that, I love that. And in all the nightmare films, it was that way. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. I think that's why everyone has connected with that character. I think that Nancy's, uh, she's so resourceful and she's so smart and she does care about her friends so much and she, she, she has this great social conscience that this needs to be, you know, this wrong needs to be righted and, and defeated. So she never ever thinks of herself as the victim in this situation. And um, in my experience talking to the fans of this movie is that, I mean, especially young women, they just, they, they just wanna be so much like her in their own lives. And it's great to play a character like that because never, never does she give up and never does she not believe in herself. When I got the call to go to this audition, I'd never heard of Wes Craven, and I don't know if that many people had. I think if you were really into some underground kind of uh, interesting filmmaking, you might have known who he was. I remember being um, at the sound stage where we were shooting, and Robert England said, oh, well, you know who Wes Craven is, don't you? I'm like, no, actually, I don't. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was very young, you know, so it was one of my very first jobs at all, so uh, I didn't know a lot about the people in Hollywood, and I certainly didn't know much about Wes Craven. It was a big call because there were lots of people there, lots of teenagers were there, and it was very crowded. We were sitting on the floor, there wasn't much space, and it was in a, you know, kind of little questionable part of Hollywood. So I really didn't think much was going to come out of it. and. Um, the audition went really well, and I felt really strongly about it. But it wasn't like some of the auditions I'd gone on where you have screen tests and they dress you up and you get your hair done and, you know, you, you get approved by the studio. It was very relaxed. It was, I think we just met with Wes maybe three times. I don't remember ever going in front of any executives. You know, it wasn't like what they put you through now to be in a feature film. Robert Shea, producer. I remember she came from Washington, D.C. I don't know what her previous pr professional skills were, but uh, she definitely had skills, and she was a terrific asset for the film. Tina? Who are you? Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. The first time I saw Freddie, uh, Robert England, it was um, in the dressing room, in the makeup room. We walked in and I just, I remember I walked in and I don't remember ever, ever seeing him without his makeup until after I'd met him. 
It was so funny because he would sit there and he's such a, an amazing raconteur and he would just have this audience around him because he would just tell these fabulous tales of doing plays here and there and being in London and just, um, he just was so, I just found it, he was so eccentric and intelligent and just on the cutting edge of a sort of avant-garde theater and, and stuff. And, but it was all told through this mask of Freddie and it was just so bizarre and great. David Miller, special makeup effects. I don't remember anything uh, unusual. They knew it was makeup and all that, but a, a funny thing is uh, one time he came in a little early and he was at the craft service table without his makeup. And his security came up and asked him what he was doing there. Nobody knew who he was because I would get in, you know, like 4 o'clock in the morning or 5 o'clock in the morning. He would come in the same time before all the other crew. So nobody really saw him without the makeup. Wes Craven, writer and director. I don't know what worlds uh, Robert went to, you know, to, to bring out the, the elements of Freddy. Um, didn't talk about it, but um, my sense is that everybody has those things, but they have to know they're there and have to be willing to say, uh, okay, it's okay to bring them out a little bit or a lot, um, but I'm still in control of my overall character and persona and I can put them back, you know. Uh, but uh, where he went individually, I, I kind of leave that up to the actors. You know, it's it's better in some ways not to stipulate too much when you're directing, but you just say in general, go to that place where you're most terrified or where you feel like you've been most in control and enjoyed it over somebody or something like that. And then the person goes in those caverns and byways that nobody can know about because they don't want to talk about it. It was just, uh, you know, giving him the opportunity to do his thing, really. You know, I, may, I can't remember whether I pulled him back a little bit maybe on some things, but. Pretty much in that, he was pretty much where I wanted that character to be and, and bringing lots of fresh and new stuff to it that I probably hadn't even thought of. So it was a kind of a, a, a cool uh, collaboration. And then what happened? Robert England, Fred Krueger. I imagined, I remember in, in, I guess it was the third grade, they had a Valentine's Day. We made Valentine's all week with those damn doilies and all that crap and the paste that the kids like to eat. And then was the mailbox, you know, a bunch of kids had to make the mailbox with the Valentine's cut out on it. And then, you know, the, somebody gets chosen, the mailman monitor, and he hands out the Valentine's on Valentine's Day to the class. This is before everybody was politically correct. And I sat next to a girl and talked to this girl all year, and she was a regular girl, going through an awkward stage in the third grade, probably taller than any of the boys in class. And I sat across from the cutest girl in class. And I remember when the Valentines got handed out, you know, that she didn't get any, or very few. I think I gave her one and maybe the teacher. And it was, I'm very, I'm an empathetic and I could feel that. And there was also a boy that didn't get any. And I imagine, I mean, I remember that all my life I've remembered that. And I think that boy was Freddy Krueger, you know, so it's just, it's hard to act that, but if you, ha if, if you have seen that, then you can believe that that could be enough for somebody to be that. Jacques Haitken, cinematographer. Well, I think to some extent, in terms of lighting, you know, we made sure that we didn't see his face in the beginning, that he was just a form, a graphic. He was, see, he's the effect in the scene. He's the effect. That's why in the second Freddy, at first we tried to replace him with Double in some scenes, not Robert. 
and the body wasn't right. And it's, you know, the, so the acting does come through. Even in a flat, even when he's just a silhouette, there's just an energy that comes from Robert England. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. I really credit Freddie's popularity to Robert England. I sometimes think if they had hired a lesser actor that it would have been a good movie, but it wouldn't have really lasted as long. People wouldn't have wanted to keep seeing more and more and more of him. And uh, just like a good comic strip, you know, they didn't just have one Superman magazine. I mean, it went on for years and years and years. People just wanted to know more about that life of that character. And, and so I think Robert brought something that was so attractive to Freddy Krueger that people just can't get enough of him. People really like to identify with, with that evil. I don't know what it is. They just, they, maybe it makes them feel more powerful or maybe they uh, conquer their own fears by embracing a character like Freddy Krueger. I, I, I really can't explain it. Wes Craven, writer and director. Certainly in Nightmare on Elm Street, I felt um, like Freddy, beyond a character that somebody thought up, stood for kind of a suite of tendencies of, of human beings, especially males, I think, to be destructive and to kind of want to slash and burn as opposed to nurture and protect. Um, and in that sense, Freddie became kind of the archetype of the dangerous father, you know, who was not something to be uh, feel good about, but somebody to be avoided and somebody that could kill you because uh, he didn't like youth, you know. There's something, to, there is an archetype of the, the old man, uh, Ibsen had the master builder who, you know, the architect who didn't want to deal with the young architect because he could tell the guy was going to be better than he was. So as opposed to nurturing somebody where you're going to be proud that he goes behind you, there's that Freddy side of things that wants to destroy you because you, you are innocent and you are youth and you have your whole life ahead of you. I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm okay. Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. I think the element that Freddy, or the device of Freddy, um, as far as in the storytelling of, with the children, is how, um, to me, he just represented um, just sort of the shadow nature of all human beings. And, but to me, he was sort of like the physical embodiment of, of um, danger. I just, and, and it can be moral danger, or it doesn't have to be physical danger that like if you, if you don't watch your kids, somebody's going to molest them. I mean, it can be taken that literally, but also I think he's, he's um, I think he's like society's worst nightmare. I was gonna say pa a parent's worst nightmare, but I think a lot of, when there's a, an absentee parent, I think it becomes society's worst nightmare of just sort of, I think that those children become prey and they also become predators because they don't have any sense of who they are. Rick Shane, editor. Evil, pure evil, a kind of embodiment of pure evil, and also, especially in terms of Nancy's mother, the kind of embodiment of guilt, because she and a group of other parents had been, res had been uh, responsible for burning him alive. So he was kind of the physical embodiment of these um, guilt feelings that they had about something they'd done in the past. Um, but I think, I think he's a wonderfully graphic representation of pure evil. David DelVal, author and film historian. I think what really frightens people today 
is how easy it would be to blur those 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 constraints that keep us in what is called polite society. I mean, what would it be like if people expressed all their feelings without any fear of, of the consequence? This is what I think makes us want to see someone like Freddy Krueger go run amok in a dream, because it's just, uh, it's just, it's a wish fulfillment in a way. Robert England, Fred Krueger. Somebody called him the bastard father of us all. But I'm here to tell you, after 20-some years of fan mail and the whole goth revolution and the punk revolution and all of the sort of closets opening for all kinds of sexuality in the world, I get some pretty amazing fan letters from girls. And I get scripts from women, what they want to see. And let me tell you, in all of them, there's the rape fantasy with Freddie, there's the captive. They want to be Freddie's captive. And I don't know what it is, um, but something's going on there. I mean, I used to think it was the glove, because I kept thinking the heavy metal guys wore gloves. And this is sort of, you know, we, we, that was sort of our first fans, our first organic fan base, was sort of the speed metal, heavy metal kids, and then the Ramon kind of fans. And there was that glove, that Michael Jackson glove fetish thing going on. There was that glove fetish in the 80s with all the girls, and Madonna had a glove fetish. And I thought maybe it was the glove for a long time, but I think it's beyond that. And I'm not sure what those components are. I mean, there's really a feminist theme in all of them. You know, girls win in every one of these, the woman warrior. But it's also the confrontation of that sexuality the confrontation with adult sexuality that, that most teenagers have to, you know, that's some of the things they're going to. There's also that, it's a loss of innocence, uh, a loss of privacy if Freddy's in your dream and your nightmares. He's in there messing around and tweaking with that. Jim Doyle, special effects. There are things that aren't talked about a lot in the movie that you see that we did. Um, when you go into a dream sequence, it's smoking. When you come out, it's sharp. You know, and that, nobody's ever really done that kind of thing before. Jacques Haitken, cinematographer. I didn't get into trying to be really uh, overly creepy. I mean, what's scary is when stuff is a little real. I wanted to make, get enough naturalism in there so that it felt like it could really be happening. If it's too artificial, stagey, that's not a good thing. We didn't go so far. That was a big debate because if you jumped into dream mode, you wouldn't transition into there and have the scare. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. Wes Craven is a very economical director. He, he's, he knows when he's happy with something, and which is great, because he never belabors something. He, he would do a few takes, we often had to deal with special effects, which often, you know, wasted a couple of takes at the beginning when it didn't work, or um, they would try new things, like, let's try this, let's try that. So a lot of the times your secondary, your performance is kind of secondary to whether the special effects work. And um, there were a couple of times when you know that you're not happy with the, with the take that he printed, 
but you knew that, oh, it involved the pillow bursting and the feathers and the glass breaking and, uh, you know, everything had to come together in that one scene. And if your acting wasn't there, that was tough luck. They weren't going to go in all the trouble of putting the feathers back in the bag. And so as, a, as someone who's done a few horror movies now, I sometimes go home going, gosh, I just wish I had nailed that. And then when I see the final product, Wes is such a great director that he can hide all the bad things that you did with your performance. You know, he can cut away to, you know, something else. Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. You didn't get to belabor and you didn't get to make everything precious. Like, oh, it's my scene and I'm gonna do this. It was like, there's a guy running by you that's on fire and they're only gonna do that once. So <laughs> you need to know what you're gonna do, you know? So you can't be like, oh, I can't remember my line. John Burroughs, production manager and associate producer. Wes wanted to have creepy crawlies come out of this one. He just didn't want to have a body bag. He said, John, you got to find some huge uh, spiders, tarantulas, huge worms. I want stuff coming out of the bag. And so we called around and we found this. It was actually an insect wrangler, which I'd never known or heard of. So he came in and he had a show and tell with us, with Wes and a couple of the actors that were going to work with the bag and me. And he brought these things out of a big suitcase and put them on my desk. Slimy creatures and everything. And uh, Wes said, nope, no, that's it. You got the job. Wes Craven, writer and director. With all the kind of things that happened to Nancy in that kind of nightmarish world, uh, they were an amalgam of things that I'd seen in European, like, you know, um, Repulsion had a lot of great shots of hands coming through the walls and things of that sort that I stole. Um, and some of it was just reading uh, psychology or talking to friends about nightmares, you know. They, they, losing the ability to run is very common. Uh, or running into a swamp or something where what you think is solid line turns out to be, you know, something that will just kind of suck at your feet and slow you down. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. I believe I saw the glove when it was already on Freddie's hand. I don't believe I saw it before then. It was a really scary object. Over time, I became used to it, but I think the very first time I saw it with the knives and the glove and uh, th that aspect of the child molester with the glove, to me, yeah, it caused a lot of nightmares. Robert Shea, producer. The script called for this, this menacing glove with razors for fingers, and this was obviously the uh, effects man's uh, uh, conception of what that glove looked like. And it was pretty simplistic, but it did ha was a glove, and it did have razors, uh, knives hooked onto the, each of the fingers. And uh, at, at that point, I wasn't... Uh, wasn't too too choosy about how things were going to were going to look just as long as uh, we had something. Robert England, Fred Krueger, Jim Doyle, really talented, talented guy. We burned him out, I think, on Nightmare on Elm Street Part One. I think the guy worked twenty-four-seven, literally, for six, seven weeks. Genius. Jim gave it to me first, and you know we had a lot of them, a lot of different ones for different for stunts and for reflecting the light, etc., for cutting things. And the glove is heavy, so it did make me drop one shoulder. And that, that to me, evoked a gunfighter or a gunslinger. So I imagined the glove even heavier than it was. And that became a kind of a 
gunslinger thing with with that with the right arm and, the, and let the glove a little lower and let that arm hang a little lower, almost elongate that arm. Jim Doyle, special effects. Robert knew instantly what sort of movements he could do with this thing. He was great with that thing. And, and he was walking around for a day just trying different things he could do that were going to be interesting and scary, but graceful. He was really interested in the grace of the whole, how the whole thing worked. Wes Craven, writer and director. Steak knives, I, I believe, were my idea because I just thought it was it was one of those things they sold on late night television all the time back in those days. I know we had the the hero glove, which was sharp and could slash through, um, you know, fabrics and things like that. Because I remember when they did the second one, they came to me and asked because I had been given it if they could borrow it to copy it, and that was the last time I ever saw it. But uh, there was that one, and then obviously there was a stunt one that uh, you know was still steel but uh, was dull. And then I believe we had some that were made out of rubber and things like that that were, you know, just for stunts and things like that. Just go down and look at him. Please, Daddy. All right. I see it. Give me the keys. All right. Patrick McMahon, co-editor. We had a few trouble scenes. Um, that we jumped into and, and wrestled with. Uh, one of them was the scene where uh, Tina's boyfriend is in the jail cell and the, the sheet, the bed sheet gets wrapped around the neck and you know, it was, it was kind of difficult to, uh, I remember editing that and thinking that the, uh, that was a hard one to do as a practical effect. And so we, we struggled with that, but, but ultimately we just, you know, shortened it a lot so that it was just more terrifying based upon, you know, the fact that it was happening and he went up the wall. The other things that were coming in were actually really exciting. Uh, I thought it was a, a great script, but I, I was sure they were not going to get this on film. And I just figured on the budget they had, there's no way it could have all these things with the room turning upside down and all these things going on. And, and uh, I was really thrilled and surprised when I jumped on board and saw it coming together. Uh, Wes really shot it, uh, and the practical effects were pretty amazing, too. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. May God be with this young man's soul. Wes Craven, writer and director. The relationship between, uh, you know, Nancy's parents was trying to think, it might have been the first divorced parents that I had in one of my films. And uh, it was kind of interesting because I had, by that time, gone through a divorce and you know, my parents had divorced just before my father died. So it was really actually a part of my life and persona that, you know, I felt kind of comfortable looking at. But there's just, it had become so common, you know, divorce that uh, I felt it was appropriate for it. And it also was this kind of division, and, and if the parents had indeed done what they, it's revealed they did do, um, a divorce would be quite likely, in a way, just because of the stresses and strains. There was a Russian uh, mystic called Gurdjieff who said that the higher up you go towards consciousness, the more pain you're in, and the last level before you break through to kind of illumination is uh, the level of suicide or retreat. What Gurdjieff called going outdoors, as opposed to facing reality, and 
you know, one of the doors was job. I didn't call it jobism, but it was basically the, your job becomes the most important thing to you, you know, getting ahead in the stock market, whatever it is, and that if you just concentrate on that, you don't have to think about these scary thoughts about who the hell am I and what comes, what happens after I die and, you know, what is reality and all those things. John Saxon was the, uh, you know, obviously the person that represented the most rigid ways of looking at life. There is a right and there's a wrong. This is for the law, you know. Within the law, this is outside the law, and that's it, you know. And that's, in some ways, a very comforting thing. You know, if, if your world really breaks down to, you know, evil guys and good guys, boy, if you can keep that going, that's really, really comforting. Um, so uh, that was that character. And then the mother was uh, somebody who I think really, I wanted her to have really felt what they had done uh, and be really torn by the fact that um, she was a parent. She did not want this man out there in a way that would threaten her child, but she also knew she had done and participated in something that was horrible, that they had murdered somebody, and that if any of them talked, they, they would lose everything. And the way, the door she went out was alcohol. And uh, I found that interesting, and I liked the way at the very end, before Nancy finally faces Freddie for the final time, she tucks her mother in, you know, and puts her mother to bed with her bottle, so to speak. Um, and I thought that that was a great paradigm for a child going from childhood to adulthood, which, you know, happens to all of us in a way that uh, the parents become, at a certain point, somebody you have to take care of. And it's, there's an aching realization that now it's you that's out there in the point of the spear, you know. Uh, so I, I like that element that at a certain point she was just not able to deal with it and was blotto. And then her kid puts her to bed and says everything's going to be all right and tells her basically the lies that that woman needs to get through the night. Every character in my mind had a door that, that he or she was going out of. Um, what the hell John Saxon was the law uh, and good and evil. Uh, Ronnie's was uh, alcohol. Um, Amanda Wiss's character was a guy. Just this guy who is your everything. Um, and for his character, it, it was um, sex. You know, he just wanted to get laid. Yeah, that was the one thing that made him feel good, you know. Um, and with Glenn, it was actually, I, I don't know, Johnny didn't quite look like this kind of guy, but it was like food uh, and, and music, and he just kind of curled up in his little fetal bed, you know. But uh, at the time, she's talking about reading the book on, uh, on how to make uh, improvised uh, weapons, which he uses in the last act. He's, he's chewing on a big hamburger. So it's like, you know, he's more interested in eating and, and doing those kind of simple things. And, you know, he's a football player. It was kind of like a cliche that was made a lot more real and interesting because Johnny Depp was playing him. And he played off character to all those types in a way. And it was really interesting as a director. To, there was no way he was going to be the typical football player. So he became this really interesting kind of poet football player. Doctor, what's she doing now? Is she asleep or awake? Something's wrong. It never gets this high. What's she doing? Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. Ronnie decided to play the character as, well, I mean, I, it was written that way too, as a drunk. And I mean, anybody who's been, you know, around parents who are alcoholics, just know how painful that is for the kids, especially if there's some kind of crisis, you know, and they, the parents aren't living up to the responsibilities that they have to take care of you. So 
that was always the tension that I, as my character, I always felt like I just wanted her help so badly, but then I was going to be the parent in this situation and, and not having anybody to turn to and keep trying to turn to this person and then keep getting rejected by, by that person. And I loved the scene in the kitchen where um, you know, I'm showing her proof, you know, that I'm not crazy and that and she's treating me like I am crazy. We both really liked that scene because I think so many kids really find themselves in that position and and the outcomes are often way more tragic than that scene. But, um, you know, parents just lose it sometimes. and. Uh, and I just really, I thought that scene was one of the most realistic parent-child scenes in the whole movie. Ronnie Blakely, Marge Thompson. Well, of course, she's terribly worried about her daughter and the dark secret she carries is that she has already killed Freddie because he was killing the neighborhood children and that she and the other parents got together and set him on fire and killed him. So whereas she tries to protect her daughter from this kind of knowledge, she also fears for her daughter's safety. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. I think Wes is trying to tell us that as a society, we have, we've really put kids into a compartment where they're not really allowed to be responsible and they're not allowed to have um, real opinions and their opinions are looked at as kids' opinions and kids' problems. And I think if you're a kid and you're watching Nightmare on Elm Street, you're like, yes, why don't they, you know, see my problems for the serious problems that they are? You'll feel better when you get some sleep. Feel better? You call this feeling better? Or maybe I should grab that bottle and veg Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. I think one of the things Wes wanted to say about the children in this film, and I'll speak for my character first, was that I think a lot of the, almost all the kids in this film were very shelterless. They didn't have, um, everybody had a strong parental home um, or, or influence. And my mother was uh, in the film, you know, basically I was sort of in a, uh, what, like a latchkey kid or whatever. And, and clearly by my behavior, you can tell I was probably mimicking my mother's behavior. It was just sort of like, you know, you know, I didn't have much guidance and I was searching for love by like, you know, being so sexually active so young and all of that. And I think even, you know, Nancy's character, whose parents were both there, she just, nobody, I believe he was saying, like, unless we parent our children better, they're so unsafe. And, like, we're creating this future generation of children that are acting out and they're, I don't know, the word just shelterless keeps coming up where they're just having to struggle so hard to, like, turn into a grown-up because they're not having any guidance or there's no safety. I just think, like, the way society was starting to be then and how we really just blossomed into this society that doesn't take care of children or it doesn't value them, doesn't value their education, doesn't value their body, you know, just that we don't take care of them. And I think that Wes was just really forward thinking. David DelVal, author and film historian. This is a point that's just kind of in the sequels, you kind of forget that. But this is what Fred Krueger did. He was a seducer. He lured little girls and boys into this boiler room to perform unnatural acts that always ended in murder. But you know, there's something else at work here. 
he doesn't get his day in court. So he is allowed to come back into the dreams of the Elm Street kids and do whatever he wants to them because the parents have not prepared them for it. What happens? The children have to drag Freddy Krueger out of his fantasy world, out of the fiction, out of the subconscious of dreams. And the only way he's vulnerable is to be placed in reality, a place that no one really wants to be. But the children find this out on their own. You're starting to scare me. Sarah Risher, co-producer. The location people discovered the perfect house, which looked like middle America. Became really famous for a while until finally by Nightmare 7, I think they asked us not to come there anymore. And, um, and we painted the door. And after the film became a hit, the owners repainted the door because they had so many people stopping and taking pictures and uh, knowing this was the Nightmare House. John Burroughs, associate producer. The day before we were going to shoot, we had set decorators in there working on the house. And they came back and they said the IRS had come to the house and rang the bell. Now, the, nobody, the lady that lived there and her husband were gone. They were out shopping or doing something. And so the set decorator answered the door and the guy with a badge is saying, sir, he said, we're going to have to put a notice on your house. It's a lien and I'm nailing up on the door. He said, you don't pay within 30 days, the house is gone. <laughs> and he looked at the guy arrest and said, oh my gosh, we're shooting a picture here in about 14 uh, hours. <laughs> and the IRS man said, I don't care what you say, I've heard every excuse. And he said, well, he, I can't do anything, so you go ahead and nail it up there. So he did. <laughs> and he said, to, the IRS man told him, you don't take this down ever. It has to be here 24 hours a day. So we got there the next morning and we took it down. <laughs> we didn't hear from anybody, so it was down for a week. Robert England, Fred Krueger. Once we were in the studio, it was wonderful. We were in this little perfect miniature lot in the heart of Hollywood. You know, there were great little Thai restaurants across the street. Everybody had easy access parking. Our dressing rooms were little offices, you know, that, you know, that maybe had been Desi Arnaz or Lucille Ball's office. I think they called it Renmar back then, but uh, it, it was the old Desi Lou. I can even remember somebody uh, taking us to a, there was still scenery, I think from the Brady Bunch there, or the Partridge Family, or one of those shows that shot there. You know, and there was like all these like mash notes to David Cassidy on the back of these old flats. and. And also, it was the year of the uh, uh, Los, the very successful Los Angeles uh, Olympics and 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 arts festival. And uh, I know in rehearsing in the adjacent soundstage was a Teatro de Soleil, which is arguably the best theater in Europe. And these these people are incredible artists, you know, uh, and, and doing their classics and these brilliant sort of Bollywood productions of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and stuff. John Burroughs production manager and associate producer. The first year they came to the United States, they, they rented that stage to put the show on. And now they have like seven, 800 people coming in nightly, and then a big band in the stage, and all their excitement and clapping, and you could hear it in our stage. 
and the sound man, he was going nuts. He said, John, we just can't do this. So I complained and uh, Bob Shea called them and said that he was gonna sue if they didn't do something about the sound. So they actually cut the band out and told the audience, don't clap <laughs> for the next 12 days. And that was what, that settled it, okay. How long has it been since you slept? It's coming up on the seventh day. It's okay, I checked Guinness, the record's 11. Listen, Glenn, I know who he is. Who? The killer. You do? Yes. Wes Craven, writer and director. The reason uh, Nightmare on Elm Street focused on teenagers and the reason why most horror films focus on teenagers or early 20s is, first of all, that's the audience that is willing to come out to films um, and spend money in theaters, actually more than adults, except for the really, really high-end films, uh, because they want to go out on a date and they want to get out of their parents' homes and, uh, you know, they want to be able to put their arms around somebody and all those kind of fun things. So you kind of do characters that are about your audience that is willing to pay the money to see it. But it's also about young, young humans that are in transition from childhood to adulthood, which I think is very important because they have elements of their own, still their sort of childhood naivete. And there's a lot of things about life, especially in the era of Nightmare on Elm Street 1984, where things like sex and so forth were a mystery. Um, and it were kind of tricky and scary. So um, it's, it's just a group of characters that are kind of at a, a real big turning point, and that always makes for interesting drama. Rick Shane, editor. I think the film was particularly um, successful at capturing a teenage audience at a, at a time in their lives when um, they wanted to explore certain fears that they had. And I'd never seen a film before that did that as well. It defined their world so clearly as separate from their parents. Um, and I think that it started a whole genre of films that went in that direction, that explored that teenage world, that, that gave teenagers a lot of visceral thrills around being scared. Um, and uh, uh, I think to me, that was probably the main, um, the main influence of the film. Charles Bernstein, composer. Freddie comes from a land of dreams. And people are uncomfortable in ungovernable situations where they don't have control, you know? I think Freddie is the perfect... A creature that comes from a realm where we have no control, who in this movie uh, presents himself uh, unbidden and unwelcomed. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about dreams are we can wake up in the morning and go about our day. If we couldn't, and there are mental ailments where indeed you can't, that's not a uh, happy situation, to not be able to escape from the realm of dreams. And Freddy escapes from the realm of dreams and pursues his victims. Not comforting. As to the, that era, I think, I think it was a very prosperous and kind of a um, very easy era in the country uh, in, in a lot of ways. Not, not across the board, but there was, uh, it, it was 
like all eras prior to the current one, more innocent. And uh, I don't know, sometimes, uh, like in the 1950s, it was a great era for horror and, and things. I think it's kind of nice when uh, the horror isn't right on the street in your face at the moment, then you want to go in a movie theater and maybe enjoy it. Uh, perhaps it's a little more difficult when, uh, when times are rougher, maybe people aren't quite as in the mood to go in and, and have the wits scared out of them when they can get it for free. Jacques Haidtken, cinematographer. I've seen some horror films though that I think are, you know, actually not good for the culture. I think most of them are not so good for the culture, especially for very young people who I see watching them supervised by adults. They put forth some uh, negative images. Let's keep it simple. They portray sadism is not a terrible, horrible thing by the perpetrators. They, there's always a moral that um, the, the people perpetrating it wind up, you know, in trouble or they get killed or something like that. But still, some of the level of gratuitousness and the amount of it is there to tantalize the audience and sort of get them uh, lured into uh, accepting and getting desensitized to violence and other uh, kinds of things. Children I'm talking about, not adults. Adults can do whatever they want because their brains are formed in a different way. It really, it's a combination of a sociological, philosophical thing, which is at the age of 15 or 16, it's still a, a toss-up where there isn't a certain amount of clinical level of perception and reality and judgment processing things going on in teenagers that they view the world differently, that uh, showing them those kinds of harsh perspectives can give them uh, a wrong idea and inure them to having normal adult responses later on because they've been desensitized in a way by this stuff because their uh, fantasies are stronger and it has more of an impact on them. I don't, uh, I'm certainly not for censorship, but, uh, and again, you know, cinema takes, goes where it wants to go. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. As a mom, I think that you really, I always feel really protective of what images are going into their brain, you know, kids' brains. And uh, even though probably people don't want to admit it, I think that once you stick an image into somebody's brain, it's pretty much there for the rest of their life. So I've been very protective about what, what images I, I want them to see. But kids are much more mature. I mean, they mature a lot earlier than we did in, in many ways. They live, especially in Los Angeles, you know, they're much more worldly than kids where I grew up. So I'm constantly trying to balance, like, well, you know, if he sees that movie, is that going to really hurt him? So they do. My son loves horror movies, sees all of them. He hasn't seen Nightmare on Elm Street, but he's seen almost every other one. And he's very critical, and he says he's never scared by them. So. Uh, there was one that he was scared by, and I knew he was because he and his friend, like, left, left, you know, with the light on that night. <laughs> it was like a sleepover, and I could tell they were a little freaked out. But in general, I think they're very firmly aware, kids are, that this is fantasy. And this is, it might be bloody, gory, disgusting, you know, awful fantasy, but that it isn't real. But it seems to me that kids can, you know, that's the movies, that's horror, and, you know, this is my life, and it's not part of that. 
it took a long time to get that eye movement that I do. Wes, I think, did more takes on that than anything in the whole movie because he wanted my eye to do this special thing where it just goes straight down and I don't know why I couldn't do it right the first time. But um, he definitely wanted this exact movement of my eyeball. We did shoot some scenes that never made it where I come into the house and um, there's like a banquet that's all dead. And so it was, uh, unfortunately, didn't make it into the final sh uh, shot, but I'm walking through the house and it's just these like fly-ridden corpses of, of old food and things like that. Jim Doyle, special effects. I had a guy in my crew, Peter Kelly, um, had really, really long arms. Peter's laying right underneath. It's right underneath Johnny. The bed's been pre-cut. All he has to do is punch his arms up through there, grab him around the waist, and haul him down. And they're both now standing on a platform. That was pretty much all there was to it, except for the TV hitting Peter in the head. <laughs> so he hadn't counted on that. But it was cool that the TV stayed lit as it went in through the hole. And then the stereo was dragged after all those things they were hauling that stuff down through, the, down through the hole. And it was all landing on Peter's head. But he didn't mind. It was, it was a good shot for him. Wes Craven, writer and director. Everybody was nervous about that one. So I said, I'll, I'll go in the second seat. So it was me and Jacques and a bullet down camera. We were bolted to the wall and we had five point harnesses and uh, did the water and it was an incredible you know, sight. And then I said, okay, move the room. And as soon as the room moved off the balance point, the, the water shifted and the room just went <laughs> and there were huge sparks and everyone went black. Everybody thought we were dead, you know, because they had to wait until the room stopped spinning and they had to get ladders and everything else and we were totally drenched in the stuff. And we were glad to get out of that without getting electrocuted. John Burroughs, associate producer. Nobody had figured out when we finished at 9.30 at night and went home that the, all this blood was all over the stage. The stage manager called me and said, John, you've got an inch of blood all over puddled around the stage. You're not going to be able to work in the morning. You better get somebody, a laborer, somebody to come in. And I said, it's 10.30 at night. I, I don't know who I'm going to get. So I, I thought, gee, well, my son is 16. <laughs> I said, you know, John, you've been down and you know the set. Why don't you go down there and bring some brooms from our house? There may not be anything on the stage, and you'll have to sweep up the blood. So he said, well, how much are you going to pay me? I don't know what it was. I guess I paid him $10, and he said, I'll do it. Okay, so he went down and he swept all the blood up, and he was still there when we got there at 6 in the morning. David DelVal, author and film historian. What made it so compelling was that it was so much like a nightmare. And to have this character kind of invade your dreams like that made it all the creepier. And you know, it, it, it certainly helped with the little pieces of information that you were given about him throughout the movie. By the time Ronnie Blakely sits down and says what he was and what he did and why he is the way he is, it then makes all the things you saw before even creepier. The fact that he's living in this alternate universe in this boiler room, wearing this, these, these dirty clothes and, and uh, sporting this hand that's uh, a lethal weapon of, of sharp razors. I've 
As far as uh, a prototype for a character like Fred Krueger, there really aren't that many. You have uh, Peter Lorre in Fritz Lang's M, someone who has uh, a need for children, and then his psychotic side takes over and uh, he becomes a killer. But he's a killer with a conscience. And I emphasize that because that is the difference between Fred Krueger and the Peter Lorre character in M. Um, you then don't really have anything remotely like Fred Krueger until you get into some movies like, oh, say, William Castle's The Night Walker, where you have a recurring figure that lures the person who's dreaming into various situations. And I'm sure that Freddy Krueger is really an offshoot of this uh, kind of demented handyman in The Bad Seed. In The Bad Seed, this little girl who is a homicidal kind of personality is found out by a simple-minded but rather perverted handyman who sleeps on a, a cloth a bed, a mattress made that he's filled with straw. And of course, he's burnt to death. In the 30s and 40s, dreams in films where there was like a sequence, The Wolfman, uh, Larry Talbert has a dream where he may or may not have killed someone. Stranger on the Third Floor, a film Peter Lorre did in the 40s, also had dream sequences where uh, the characters kind of play out their anxieties in like one flashback. All the universal horror films like The House of Dracula and um, She-Wolf of London, all these movies have sequences where someone has a dream that may explain why they're the, uh, where they think they've committed a murder. But there was never a situation up until Nightmare on Elm Street where the entire action of one of the characters is in a dream. I think one of the reasons why dream sequences were always kept at a minimum is that studios, if they saw a dream sequence in a script, this meant more money, this meant opticals, this meant it was a pain to do. So they would kind of approach a dream sequence as, oh, do we really have to? Or if the, if it, the lower the budget, the less chance you were of having a dream. But sometimes you have to turn away. To Wes Craven, writer and director. There was a film called Dreamscape that came out uh, just before Nightmare, about a, a year before, but um, that was two and a half years after Nightmare was going around town, so I never was sure where that film came from. But, um, you know, I think nightmares in, in films have been used uh, sometimes, somewhat, but I don't think ever to the extent that you actually went into the dreams and, and moved about in them. Rick Shane, editor. Production was in Los Angeles and editorial was in, uh, I was located at 1600 Broadway in New York City. Um, and uh, I basically uh, would talk to the production coordinator in Los Angeles or my assistant would and we all communicated by phone and then basically um, uh, Wes and I would talk maybe once a week. He was very busy shooting and getting through the schedule. And I remember, I think twice, I sent him out some cut material just to 
show him what I was doing, and he gave me some a little bit of feedback. I think he was pleased with what he saw. And uh, the real intensive work didn't start for me um, in terms of my relationship with him until he came back. Wes Craven, writer and director. So then I went into the cutting room with uh, Rick Shane, who was a great guy, great editor, and we just, um, as, as somebody who taught me how to edit, says so you beat the shit out of it. You know, you just don't stop trying to make it better, and you just, what about this, what about this, what about this? And we went, I think we cut for, I don't know, four or five weeks. Still very short. But it was very, very interesting that uh, Sean Cunningham, my old producer and friend from uh, Last House, once told me that there's a saying in film that uh, nothing looks better than dailies or worse than your first cut, you know. And that certainly was the case. Uh, and I remember Sean calling me uh, to look at Friday the 13th, the first time he had shot that and cut it together. And uh, we looked at it, and we both looked at each other and said, this is never going to work because it's just so slow. And then the music showed up, and that incredible score, and suddenly it worked like gangbusters. So you really have to have a faith that the film is in there someplace. And certainly we had to do that with Nightmare on Elm Street. We had to really just, Bob had to give us more time. And, um, you know, as it started to emerge, he, he got a little bit more comfortable and gave us a little bit more time. And, uh, you know, sure enough, there was a great film in there. Patrick McMahon, co-editor. Sometimes the best editing is when you're not editing at all and, and letting the scene play out. And when Nancy was walking around looking for this guy, the, the, the terror of, of waiting for him to appear behind her or in front of her or wherever he might come was uh, much more, uh, you know, uh, hyped than, than, than it would have been if you were trying to elevate it with cuts. Rick Shane, editor. Here we were working in a quite a, a small indoor room uh, in this office building on Broadway in New York and really having no idea of what we had on our hands. And I remember the first time we ran the film uh, with an audience, which I think was at the lab we were using at the time, and maybe there were uh, 25 people there, um, and people started viscerally reacting to what they were seeing. Uh, jumping, I mean, I could tell if the timing on the cuts was right because I would see all 20 five heads bobbing at the same time. Other, other cuts, they were moving but not quite in sync, not quite when we wanted them to, so I knew I had to shave a few frames here and there to get the perfect timing. But the um, more we, we refined the cut and the bigger the audiences got, the more people would react. I'm here! Charles Bernstein, composer. I got a call from Charlie Ryan, who was my agent at that time, and he said, there's a guy named Wes Craven. I said, oh, okay. Uh, he said, I think you should do this picture. There's not a lot of money, and no, maybe no one will see it, but a few, you know, a few people that are uh, aficionados of this kind of genre, but I think you'd be well suited to it. And I said, sounds good. When I saw the picture, though, I had a feeling, you know, it was so interesting, and it had, the first thing I thought about this picture, I mentioned it to Wes, it reminded me of Eight and a Half, which is one of my very favorite movies. And Eight and a Half, the Fellini masterpiece, uh, you never knew where you were. You know, you didn't know if you were in Mastriani's head 
seeing something that wasn't in fact happening in real time or whether it was happening in real time and the fluidity with which uh, the action moved between the realm of fantasy, his fantasies, and reality was largely uh, signaled by music. Wes and I talked about these things. There's not a voice or a sound in the picture that I didn't personally play or sing. In the opening credits, what sounds like a female vocal, a demented woman's voice, that's me singing in falsetto into a boss guitar pedal. You know, I mean, that's how, how uh, funky this thing was, you know? But it really worked. Sarah Risher, co-producer. So then we get into the mix, and we were waiting for the music to come. And it hadn't come yet, and we were still mixing the rest of the, the sound. And I suddenly went into labor. And I said, I think I got to go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and had the baby. Bob called me the next day. He said, you're not going to believe this, but the music supervisor has disappeared. And he hasn't given the money to Charles. And we have no money to pay Charles. And he's only gotten like half his fee. He hasn't gotten the rest of the fee and doesn't want to deliver the music. And he said, so you, can you straighten this out? We've got to get the music. I said, Bob, I had my baby just two hours ago. And he said, well, you could make a phone call, couldn't you? And I said, sure, but it's, it's 6 o'clock. And he said, not in L.A. <laughs> so I picked up the phone with my new little baby in my arms, and I called Charles Bernstein. We've lost our money. I need your help. You've got to just deliver this music, and we'll get you the money. We promise you it'll come. But please, could you just give us the music? And he did. <laughs> Wes Craven, writer and director. It's one of those great things, as, you know, as a director, when you're, something is totally in somebody else's hands, and it comes back and it's just terrific. It's just like, oh man, that is so great. Score shows up almost when you're mixing the film, and it's like you're just holding your breath the whole time. And this was a case where I was holding my breath, and then it just came out in a big whoopee. You know, it was just great. Sarah Risher. Co-producer. The film opened on a Friday night. On Saturday morning, Bob called me and said that they've had reports that in the, the big screenings, in the, the big theaters with really long throws, the film was too dark and that nobody could see anything. Because we had timed it pretty dark anyway. So it was 9 o'clock on a Saturday. By this time, my baby was a month old. I strapped him on me. And I went to Times Square, which is not the Times Square of today. It was a pretty rough area. Times Square with a baby strapped to me and went into this theater um, that really was only attracting the, the sort of genre crowd. And I sat there to watch and see what was wrong. And it was very dark. It was very dark. It, you missed a lot of the nuances of the film. So I went upstairs to the projection room. And it turns out to save money. And I've learned this. I don't know if it still happens today. But I've learned they don't use their full candle light. They, they turn it down to save money. So we then lightened the prints, because we knew this was going to happen all over America. So that was a problem we, we corrected after the film opened. Help! Help! Daddy, help me! Please! Maybe I better go tell the lieutenant. Jim Doyle, special effects. The issue here was the body burn occurred in a closed room with an eight-foot ceiling. 
So if he was going to do the type of burn he usually did, he was going to light the set on fire. It's, and also there was going to be a lot of heat concentrated back on him. It wasn't going to, there wasn't going to be a way for it to escape. So we fireproofed the whole set, obviously, and it's, there were two burns. The first burn was just light up and move, out of frame, Nancy moves, then we put him out. And the second burn was the full body burn, running around the furnace, turning, going up the stairs, getting to the door, door slams in his face, and he goes back down and starts up again. That was actually done in one shot. Wes Craven, writer and director. I was near that set, and the heat in there was just incredible. I mean, we all thought we'd watch it from like 15 feet away, and then when the fire started going, it was contained in that area, and we all just started backing away really fast. Tony was down there, like, burning away for quite a while. Jim Doyle, special effects. The biggest problem for me, uh, and for actually the rest of the company, was that we were shooting a horror film, which has a lot of night shots, in July. What were we thinking? They, the daylight's like, you know, 28 hours. You got about 30 seconds of night to shoot. So we kept losing sets on, gags on set, and we, everything kept getting pushed into the last two weeks on stage. So that became a real issue, uh, because stuff we had built to work on, on set didn't work anymore. It had to be rebuilt to work on stage. And it, all of a sudden, I had a crew of six that was spread between five units. And you tr try to keep track of what these five units were shooting, and they were all effect shots, because that's the stuff you lose on location. I got to the point where I was pretty tired. It was, that was 26 days straight, or probably 20 hours a day. So by the time we got to the wrap, I, would, I, I was ready to wrap. I was pretty much a happy camper not to have to go back to that set. It was tough, it was, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Robert Shea, producer. When Wes and I were mixing the film in New York, uh, we had an ad prepared, and uh, one of the kids from the office, a messenger, or maybe it was a messenger, uh, came over to the mixing studio to show us the ad, and it was... Um, uh, a house on a street with a slash through it and a woman sc screaming through the slash. So I looked at it and Wes looked at it and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I, th I think it's okay. And what do you think? Well, I, th I think it's, it's pretty much okay. okay. And just as the kid was packing up the, the, uh, the, the comp and taking it back, I said, well, what do you think? He said, I think it sucks. He said, it's really a terrible ad. So I said, you know, you're right, it sucks. And Wes said, yeah, it does suck. And so we then found somebody else to do the picture of, of, uh, of uh, Heather bolting up in the middle of the night with uh, Freddie in the background or something. It was a painting that really helped sell the movie. Sarah Risher, co-producer. We didn't know we had a hit. The first sign we had a hit was, again, um, just a couple of days before the film opened, we had decided to let it play. My husband, the father of my baby, was uh, German. And he asked to put it in the German Hof Film Festival. And, and Bob said, OK, because it's just like two days before we were going to open our film. And, um, and we didn't know what we had here, really. I mean, critics had seen it, but we couldn't tell what they thought. So we really didn't know. We didn't have the money for NRG screenings back in those days, where you test a film. So. They called me. The film played at midnight, and Stefan and the head of the Hof Film Festival, it's quite a famous festival in Europe, called and said it was standing ovation. It was absolutely knockout. Could they have permission to screen it 
several more times. They had so many people wanting to see this movie that it was a huge, huge hit of the festival. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson. They showed the film at a little tiny screening room in, uh, at Warner Brothers, and they invited all of us. And I remember I had invited everybody over to have, you know, you know, to get together, and then we were going to go over there together. And we got there maybe like two or, you know, five minutes before it was supposed to start. It's gonna burn off soon. And they're like, sorry, you can't come in. <laughs> the fire marshal has closed it down for any more people to come in. And I'm like, but we're in it, you know? We want to see the movie. And they're like, I'm sorry, you know? And I'm like, can't we just sit on the floor? And uh, they're like, the capacity's 88 people or whatever it was, and you know, we're already gotten too many people in here. And, and somebody, found us a seat, you know, and we saw it. And I don't even remember it. I think I was just too excited to even remember it. And I, uh, I actually saw it again recently at, at a very large screen in Hollywood and at the Egyptian Theater. And I was kind of surprised because I really hadn't seen it on a big screen in 20, over 20 years. And even that Warner Brothers screening room, it was not a full-size screen, so. Uh, that's just the kind of, you know, it was just a small-time movie back then, you know? I don't think they expected 10 people to show up. Amanda Wiss, Tina Gray. The first time I saw the film was a long time after it came out. There was a screening at Warner Brothers, and I'd gone to that, and um, there, there was no seats left. I was late, and so I couldn't go in. I'm like, but I'm, I'm one of the stars of the film. And they were like, we don't care. So it's like, darn. And then I went to go see it opening night in Westwood, and it was sold out. And I was like, okay. And then I ended up waiting when I when it came out on tape, I saw it. So I don't think it had the impact it would have had seeing it the first time on a on a big screen. But um, I remember that actually enough time had passed that I'd lost a you know a closeness with it. And I I was like, oh my god, this is just so scary. And I fast forward through a lot of the scary parts. I was like, this is just terrifying. And that has always surprised me because people come up that like, they're little little kids and these people that are like, I loved it. And it's like, oh my God, I need to see it again. So scared. So I don't really have the stomach for scary movies. Robert England, Fred Krueger. The first time I really saw it really took, uh, you know, a sense of what I snuck down. There was a cinema down by SC here in, in LA. And apparently all the beautiful girlfriends of the football players had already seen the movie. And they brought their, all these big hulking guys in to see the movie down at SC. And it was a mixed audience, African-American, you know, a lot, of, a lot of students. And these football players are their girlfriends, you know, necks like this. And I was in the back of the theater. I don't remember who told me about this. Maybe it was one of my neighbors had told me this is the place to see it. And I went down there, and you see these, you know, 300-pound, 250-pound guys jumping out of their seats and screaming like a girl. And, of course, the women, the girlfriends loved it because they knew where all the scares were. They just loved watching their boyfriends jump. That was my first real sense of it. There was a bit of call and recall with the screen. There was some talking back to the screen. Wes Craven, writer and director. My only memory of the release of uh, Nightmare was that I was not sure at all how it would do. I went away. I think I might have gone to Hawaii. Some friend had a, a cottage there, and uh, 
I was just, I hadn't heard anything and it had opened and then there came this call, I think on like the third day, I think it was from Bob. You, you hear that tone, you know what's gonna happen. Your credibility goes way up and, and you feel like you've connected with the audience, which is a great feeling. And uh, it's a wonderful feeling when something hits like that. And yeah, Nightmare was one of those rare times where you just feel like you hit the ball out of the park.